before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Conservative parties may be good at winning elections, but have they lost the argument? This week, David Scullion speaks to Ben Woodfiden, a political theorist at McGill University, Montreal, about whether Conservatives are fighting a war on woke, how they're responding to the charge that our statues need pulling down, and whether Donald Trump can truly be called a Conservative. I'm delighted to be joined today on the Critic Podcast uh, by Ben Woodfinden, who's a, a doctoral candidate at McGill University, Montreal, uh, and has written, started writing a newsletter called Dominion, uh, where I think in his first ever one, uh, asked the question, how are Conservatives doing so badly and, and, and can Conservatives do anything about the fact that they're they're losing so hard. Is that really true? I mean, are Conservatives losing so badly? In, in Britain, we've got a Conservative government. We've got Trump winning in America. It's kind of slightly debatable whether he's a Conservative or not. But what's the actual problem here? Well, I think there's a... Um... The, it, it, conservatives are still very pretty good at winning elections. I don't think anyone would, would dispute that. The question is when uh, when conservatives actually form government, um, they don't seem to be able to do all that much. Um, it's some of them, especially when it comes to you know more kind of contentious cultural or social 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 stuff. I mean, just think back to kind of the way um, I mean the way the British government has behaved. Uh, during you know the the you know protests and kind of um, iconoclasm destroying statues as the kind of um, the kind of you know they, they'll condemn the kind of behavior but they don't do anything about it but of course they could do something about it right these are the kind of things when you're in power you have some influence to shape so I think the kind of uh, the pessimism that people feel about conservatism isn't it isn't due to you know kind of electoral annihilation it's that when conservatives have uh, when they are governing, when they have power, they don't seem to be able to do all that much with it. Um, and they just kind of tend to be a, uh, almost a footnote, right, to, um, to the kind of progressives that, control, that are in the ascendancy in uh, mainstream culture. And there's no kind of, there's really you know, minimal resistance to it and minimal desire by people in the highest, the highest political offices to actually do anything about it, which I think that kind of engenders a real, uh, a re- a real pessimism about what, 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 what's the point of any of this. And what do you think the reason is for that? Because I think a lot of people in Britain, at least, uh, you're based in Canada, in Britain we had, we had iconoclasm um, here when uh, the statue of Edward Coulston, a slave trader, was pulled down in Bristol. We had the Churchill statue was vandalised, we had other statues pulled down by councils. Why... Why aren't conservatives acting against? It seems like an obvious thing to be able to do. President Macron in France said that the, their statues aren't coming down. Why haven't people like Boris Johnson uh, made any kind of robust statement? Yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, um, I think there's a there's a real uh, a problem uh, in, in the sense that the, the the people that are kind of uh, the conservative elites, if we, for lack of a better term. Um, they really don't tend. They tend to be drawn from the same kinds of, um, uh, you know, they float in the same milieu and the same kind of social circles as the kind of progressives that they're supposedly, um, that are supposedly their political opponents. Um, and I don't think I, I my my own experiences and just kind of uh, the way the way so many, um, you know, conservative elites behave. I don't think they actually. Um, care or think all much about these things. They are essentially, um, I mean, we're all liberals in some sense, but they're, uh, many of them are kind of, they, they float in the, you know, they, they, they stew in the same waters as, 
um, as as progressives. They've they've had the same education, uh, and they probably see the world in fairly similar ways. You know, there might be some kind of you know disputes. They they might they might be in p- different political parties, and they might have some some kind of policy disputes. But the kind of broader kind of cultural worldview that they share um, is is very similar. Um, so I think the kind of the antipathy that comes, or the the hesitancy to to, to push back against stuff like this is partially, there's partially just a degree of cowardice, but, it, but that cowardice is also, I think, driven by kind of a, um, a, a lack of, uh, a lack of, a lack of zeal about these kinds of things in the sense that these people don't actually, um, they're willing to concede all the moral ground, all the high ground, uh, to the people, to, to the, to progressives, because they kind of, I think deep down kind of, Think they think they're right, or they just kind of they've imbibed the same kind of the same kind of worldview. So it's hard for them to really think that uh, to really push back in any kind of serious way. And is that the same way you are in Canada? Oh yeah, I think it's in, it might even be worse here, um, where at least in uh, at least in Britain there are um, power, fairly powerful kind of conservative forces that do push back against this. But in, in Canada, I think it's uh, it's it's even worse in the sense that. Um, Canadian conservatives tend to be just a kind of milk toast and banal kind of um, uh, just kind of permanent opposition sometimes where they just see themselves as an opposition force that occasionally uh, gets to govern for a couple of years but doesn't do anything um, and it's a really kind of um, uh, it's a very it's a very defeatist and kind of pessimistic kind of attitude in the way but it's, um, it's it is fascinating to observe where as as um, as as bad as it is in the UK sometimes in in uh, Canada the conservatives here are even uh, even even meeker in some sense. <laughs> mm. um, one of the uh, one of the articles you've written for the Critic magazine was uh, looking at the curious phenomenon of uh, U.S. politics seeping into the rest of the world, uh, and uh, we definitely saw that with the the BLM movement. Um, why do you think that is? Why are we copying American politics and taking sides on the uh, the, the the kind of the Trump versus Democrat uh, debate? It, it, it's fascinating, and, and just as an, if you're observing it, it's just it's just so bizarre to watch. Um, I mean, it's in some sense we're all kind of you know we live in an American world now. We still do. Uh, America is the it's not just kind of a, a, a you know a military hegemon; it's a cultural hegemon as well, right? And all all sorts of cultural culture emanates from uh, America in so many ways. So it's so in some sense it's not surprising given that we're saturated. Um, saturated American culture that we all have this kind of um, this familiarity with America that maybe we don't have with any other country other than the one you know other than our own countries. Um, but there's this incredibly sh- it's 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 a strange and just just weird phenomena where um, people's political identities and worldviews are completely wrapped up in in American in American uh, politics and what's happening in America. Um, and then this stuff seeps out from uh, seeps out from America everywhere else. So that, I mean the, the the best example recently, of course, is the you know the the, the death of George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis in Minnesota became this kind of worldwide galvanizing event for um, anti-racism protests and all sorts of kind of uh, political changes and upheavals that have happened since then. And it's not like um, just it's it's not like there aren't kind of issues with. Um, race, racism in other countries that aren't kind of specific and unique to those countries, right? It, but it's it somehow took something happening in in Minnesota for the whole world, for the rest of the world, to all of a sudden you know start um, end upon the streets. And I think there was part of that was totally to do with um, the pandemic and kind of uh, it was an excuse for people to get out of their houses. 
Um, but I think the the real driving force behind this uh, that's kind of accelerating this pro it's not these people people kind of investing a lot of energy in Amer- in American politics and happening going on isn't um uh, it's not I don't think it's completely new. But I think what's accelerating it is the kind of um, is the way that we consume news and media now through social media, uh, and what it does is it kind of um, instead of just uh, you know if you're if you're if you're reading about what's happening in America in a newspaper or you're even you're watching it on uh, TV in the evening, um, you're you're an observer, but you're still kind of a distant observer, right? There's a limit to how much you can uh, participate in it. But if you're uh, something, you know, social media platforms that you can, you know, like on like things and kind of really get involved and argue with people about things, it's it enables a kind of participation that draws you in uh, even more. Uh, but the, the 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 worst part about kind of um, social media driven politics is that it's in some sense it's very fake, right? It's very artificial. Like that five second video that you're you're outraged about, someone's clipped that, and it's a very kind of um, you know you can you can make these videos look like all sorts of things that might look very different given context. So we get pulled into this kind of this simulation. It's like artificial uh, artificial realm where we you know we're building building you know getting angry and building kind of real political identities that then bleed back into our into our real lives and then bleed back into kind of the politics in our own countries. Uh, but it's driven by the fact that we're all, so many people now are consuming uh, their politics online in the digital realm. It enables, it draws people, it simultaneously makes politics slightly more surreal and slightly less real, uh, but it also enables a participation that people have just never really had the access to before. I think that's a good point, and we had uh, we obviously had um, uh, not my president protests around the world when Trump was elected president. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's quite strange, really. And uh, the uh, one thing that happened in Britain was the uh, Glasgow uh, Women's Football Club put the put the name of um, Ruth uh, Ginsburg uh, yes, on yes. their uh, strip in solidarity with the the Supreme Court justice. Uh, it's just very odd. I mean, it's I'm I'm sure the most of the people involved in that didn't really know who she was until the point when she died um you mentioned that that america's a cultural hegemon but you've also uh in what you've written before mentioned how we're now not in a we're not in a world where america is the only player Uh, do you think this george floyd do you think um blm do you think the kind of the, the wokery that we've now see uh so mainstream is this the start of the end of uh America as as a global power. That's that's a good question. Um, I th- there's that the world is definitely changing. I don't think anyone would deny that. And America's kind of um, you know the the so called unipolar moment is over uh, in a kind of hard sense, right? America now has um, rivals, geopolitical rivals. It hasn't had since the end of the Cold War, really. Obviously in China, uh, but also in just other uh, insurgent actors on the global stage. Um, but in terms of uh, that kind of softer cultural um, power and cultural uh, hegemony, I unfortunately, I think that is probably, well, I think it's definitely uh, declining. Um, I think it's, that's still here to stay uh, in the sense that you, the, the, you'll know that um, America's cultural hegemony is over. You'll know it's truly over when we stop caring about these things. Um, but the question is more kind of what replaces it. I think um, it's it's quite possible to imagine a world where, I mean, right now, um, that kind of American cultural hegemony extends beyond just kind of 
English-speaking countries in the Anglosphere and extends to, you know, all sorts of other countries as well that aren't English-speaking countries, I suspect that power will eventually start to wane, uh, or that will start to wane much quicker than it will wane uh, in, in English-speaking countries. But in places like Canada and Britain, I suspect um, we're, in, we're still in for kind of a long run um, of this kind of stuff. Uh, and I think it's... Um, the the online the online world is uh, is an American world, um, you know. To, to places like Twitter revolve uh, revolve around America, and I don't I don't see that changing anytime soon. Part I mean part of it is just um, America. You know, there's there's three hundred what is it three hundred and fifty million Americans I think something like that uh, versus you know sixty sixty something million uh, Brits Brit, Brits. Uh, 40 million Canadians. So I think part of it is just that, uh, especially within the Anglosphere, America is just so much larger. Um, so th- it's possible to imagine that changing eventually. Uh, and I, I mean, in, a, in an ideal world, people would actively, the, the a weakening of that kind of cultural hegemony would, um, would, would also kind of in- cause people to become more kind of cognizant and aware of this, this kind of seeping in of American culture everywhere and maybe push back and resist it a little bit more. But I think, again, the, um, the, the ch- a changing kind of digital world makes that much harder where um, the digital breaks down kind of hard borders between, uh, like in, just to give you an example, in uh, Canada has all sorts of kind of um, cultural protectionism uh, that's precisely designed to kind of keep uh, American, American media and American culture at arm's length. Um, so part of the mandate of the CBC, the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, is basically to to not produce American Americanized news and Americanized coverage, but they still do. Um, and part of that is because it's just so inescapable now, because so much of the kind of the the as much as the digital realm isn't isn't real, it's 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 uh, it's artificial, it's it's fake in some sense. At, at some point, the, um, so much of our discourse is now driven by online actors and online players and online um, platforms that in sooner or later, it kind of, it, it does become real, right? If that is the thing that's driving discourse, sooner or later, um, it becomes reality. Uh, and then that kind of bleeds out into everything else, into other kinds of media and other kinds of culture. Uh, so I just uh, there are there are limited um, limited ways to kind of push back against this. I think the, the the only way you can push back against it is you have to kind of cultivate a kind of conscious. Uh, I mean, I deliberately try not to. Uh, if I ever do any, you know, ever I'm tweeting or writing or anything like that, I deliberately try not to write about or talk about American things, and I'm trying to actively avoid kind of getting sucked into it uh, because it's just so easy. Uh, and I honestly think that's probably the best. The best way that uh, it's, it's the easy, it's the most direct thing we can do to resist it. Uh, but the problem, the problem is that um, most people don't want to don't want to cultivate that kind of attitude because, uh, for better or for worse, American politics is just more. Um, it's more fun, right? Uh, people treat it as kind of a form of entertainment, um, and it is a form of entertainment, right? Because they have plenty of kind of cartoonish and clownish figures. Um, their divides seem deeper and more uh, more polarized, and in some sense they are. Um, and they just uh, they just it just it, people treat it as a as a form of entertainment, and then they they engage with it as such, and then it becomes kind of addictive, right? It becomes a self a self perpetuating cycle where you do it, you 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 pay more attention to it because it's fun and it seems more important, and then eventually you kind of you map everything else onto that. Uh, and it bleeds back in, in kind of weird and sometimes sometimes just very kind of contradictory and confusing ways. Uh, but it, fi- it always finds a way of kind of seeping out of 
seeping out of the digital realm and into the real world. Mm. I guess there's also a, a big concern, I mean, uh, with social media companies uh, being able to uh, censor what we say, considering they mm-hmm. are now the kind of the marketplace of ideas in our, in our culture. Yeah, um, I mean, you're seeing, uh, this is ongoing as we speak, but you're seeing uh, there, was, there was a big kind of um, a kerfuffle uh, in the last couple of days about um, social media platform censoring a, um, uh, a story about Joe Biden and his son. Um, and it is fascinating that, I mean, the reaction to that from the from American conservatives was just kind of just uh, thermonuclear, just pure unadul- unadulterated anger. And you can understand why, right? These... Uh, these platforms treat uh, they want to be treated as just as just platforms, but then they make kind of editorial and content decisions uh, about you know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And uh, I mean, I, I try not to get involved in these these fights about things, but it's pretty hard not to. It's pretty hard to deny that you know platforms like Twitter don't have. Um, they they definitely come down harder on uh, voices on the right and people on the right, and sometimes that's justified. Sometimes, but a lot of the times it's not, and all sorts of kind of insanity is allowed to kind of they, all sorts of things that um people can say and publish on the on the left people on the right can't get away with and people see i've and people see increasingly i think see those um see those see those double standards um and i mean sooner i mean um sooner or later there's i suspect there will be there's, a, there's an increasing push by uh, american conservatives to talk about kind of um going after big tech breaking up you know whether it's antitrust legislation or kind of applying uh, publisher rules to public social media platforms there's a real push to kind of go back push back against this kind of this kind of stuff uh, but then uh, people elsewhere where this is this is one of those things that is inevitably actually American dominated right as much as you know Canada or Britain or France or whoever what could have its own laws and does have its own laws and kind of publishing and um, could it, could apply its own rules to social media platforms? Inevitably, given that these platforms are American platforms and that they're American dominated, the rules that are set by the Americans on these platforms are going to be the rules that essentially govern the, the rules for the rest of us, right? So if uh, if if publishing and content rules change on uh, if the if they this Section two thirty is the is the term you'll hear a lot today, it would be essentially turning uh, social media platforms into treating them like publishers and then hold if they and then holding them kind of liable for content decisions they make um, now I'm skeptical that that's a good idea but um, if if the if something happened in America and you know the Americans did decide to start treating Twitter like a publisher as opposed to a platform well Twitter would have to change and then the, the, the user experience that you or I get in different countries would inevitably change as well, right? So in some sense, we can't escape that kind of, uh, the, you know, the American influence there. This stuff is American and by just the very act of kind of participating in it or having a Twitter account or having a Facebook account, you're, you are in some sense participating in an American medium. Um, and then the rules for it are going to be governed governed accordingly. Slightly back to the point where you mentioned about conservatives being... Uh discriminated against on social media i mean are are conservatives not um basically playing a game where the rules are tipped against them is it as conservatives moan about these kind of big tech censorship uh on their twitter accounts is it not a little bit um hypocritical you'll you'll frequently hear um uh, complaints you know uh, people complaining about the censorship of this platform or that platform um 
and then you know they'll threaten to go uh, to go elsewhere to kind of you know get off Facebook or Twitter or whatever and then um, go and use one of these kind of new you know free speech ones that has promised not to discriminate um, and there's totally a kind of a game there in the sense that you know these people will um, they are a boy who cried wolf and they'll complain and complain and complain about this but they'll never um, they'll never actually you know leave Twitter or leave Facebook uh, well um, Maybe uh, some of them might, but very few of them are going to do that. Um, but I think it actually, uh, in 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 their defence for a second, I don't think that's actually crazy to 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 not do that. And the kind of um, the the silly kind of libertarian response you'll hear sometimes of, well, if you don't like you know, this platform, go and start your own. Oh, it's not it's not that simple, right? Um, like the reason people you know, people congregate on these. Um, these social media platforms is because they are essentially public squares now, right? The digital public square is places like Facebook and Twitter, and you can, and by kind of consci- deliberately uh, abandoning it, um, you aren't actually you're what you're doing is you're excluding yourself from the digital public square. Uh, and it's not that it's not that you know platforms like Twitter and Facebook will be around forever. You know, something sooner or later, something else will come to replace them. Um, but the, the the these are for now the kind of the driving uh, the key kind of places where digital uh, discourse and debate takes place, right? So the idea that people could um, could go and withdraw and start. I think uh, one of the more recent ones is called um, uh, Parler. I think is I think is I think is what it's called. Um, but you could imagine you could just imagine a hypothetical world where. Um, you know, all the kind of angry American conservatives left Twitter and they went and used, started using uh, Parler instead. You wouldn't actually end up, if anything, that situation would be so much worse uh, in that even if they'd be free to say whatever they wanted on this other platform, um, it would one just become this kind of, um, this this uh, just homogenous group of people, just a... Um, uh, a bubble, right? It would it would just become a completely online bubble where these people would just kind of reinforce each other, uh, and then it would also things like this tend to attract the genuine, uh, the genuine crazies, right, and the genuine fringe, nasty voices, and so what you'd end up having is you might have this kind of smaller, uh, smaller right wing platform, and then the main public forum still being somewhere like Facebook or Twitter. Uh, these would be places would be dominated by you know left wing and progressive voices. Then the smaller kind of um, right wing platforms would kind of be, they would become siphons to pull everyone else out, and you would just get two two entirely separate bubbles that don't they barely interact with each other, but the main public forum would still be main digital public forum would still be places like Twitter and stuff. So it would just be a kind of um, it it would be a, a suicidal act of kind of withdrawal almost, where you would just be essentially abandoning the public square and then not actually creating anything else. That is one of the things I found. I uh, got parlor and wrote about it, and I basically came to the conclusion that it was full of people who'd been kicked off uh, Twitter and Facebook who were really angry at Twitter and Facebook. I mean, some of them like legitimately had legitimate grievances. Um, I spoke to somebody who was uh, who'd been kicked off. Uh, after he wrote, the government should hang their heads in shame, and he was told that that was promoting suicide. <laughs> uh, so, so they do have legitimate concerns, but it's it's just an echo chamber of angry people who are all on the right. There was absolutely nobody I saw who was who's on the left at all. Um, and so I think you're right that you, you lose any kind of uh, any kind of uh, capacity for debate, and you just it's the kind of balkanisation of the public square. Um, 
I mean, slightly moving on, you're a conservative writer. Uh, I, I wonder, what's your take on uh, the US election at the moment? Do you think, do you see uh, Donald Trump as a as a conservative? Um, well, I mean, I'm I, I am not a I am I'm, I'm not and I've never been a fan of Trump the man. Uh, or Trump, the president, particularly. I'm not there. He's done some things I like, but I, I do. Um, I'm certainly not in the uh, the you know the, the never Trump world or anything like that. But I do think there are legitimate concerns about kind of uh, his behavior and kind of his fitness for the office. Um, but I mean, I'm uh, I my the, the thing I I guess uh, the thing I if I could say this I appreciate about uh, Trump is Trump was kind of a. Um, uh, I, I think Trump is a man just bereft of ideology. I don't think he's a conservative in any kind of meaningful way. I think he's just a he was a he was a massively contingent force that was just in the right place at the right time and had some good good instincts and then got lucky basically in in how he won. Uh, but I think the kind of the value that he's if there's one value he's had that I think is going to be kind of a long lasting value is I think he um, he kicked the door down of a kind of um, I mean it seems like an eternity ago now but if you remember, recall his kind of uh, his his run to the Republican nomination, he he came. He was this kind of insurgent outside force, but I think what he exposed and he was he essentially kicked the door down in the House of Cards, which was the kind of the, the the stale and sclerotic state of the American and brought more broadly the conservative movement in other countries as well, but especially in the American conservative movement. And whether or not, you know, I don't think this. I don't really think there's any such thing as Trumpism, uh, and I certainly don't think that Trumpism is anything that's here to stay. Uh, but I think one of the one of one of the most kind of if you're like if you're kind of you know you're investing kind of intra-conservative debates like I am you find this stuff interesting and important. Um, the last couple of years have actually seen a real kind of renaissance and revival of kind of serious debates between different factions and different groups of conservatives that I think have been actually very very fruitful and very very good discussions and hopefully uh, in the long run will actually lead to a kind of. Um, a slightly different and more kind of reinvigorated kind of conservatism emerging in America and to a certain extent emerging elsewhere. As much as I complain about kind of the American dominance of uh, American political dominance, I think it's undeniable that stuff does, we are still in some sense, we're inevitably going to be influenced by what happens in America. Um, so I, I think that Trump's kind of, his role in kind of kicking the door down and kind of um, leading to these kind of these debates and these kind of this kind of attempts to reimagine what conservatism that had got a conservatism that had got quite stale and quite old. I think that is that's going to be a positive long term outcome. Um, I wouldn't credit him with any of the specifics of that. He had like, he had no intention of doing anything like that. He just saw a, an opportunity. Um, but that might still be one of the more valuable um, more valuable. Th- I, I mean, I'm assuming he's going to lose. I think it's quite likely that he's going to, almost certain he's going to lose in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so then in America, the debates are, uh, they're, go- they're going to be quite interesting to watch unfold um, and see kind of, um, I, doubt, I doubt there's any going back to a kind of pre-2016 um, kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, but, you know, the, the, the technical American term is fusionism, this kind of, this wedding of uh, social conservatism and um, uh, fiscal conservatism. Um, the I doubt there's any going back to that kind of budget hawk, budget budget deficit, socially conservative uh, fusion of pre-2016. But what comes after, I think, is uh, it's very much up for debate and it's up for grabs. Um, there could be a return. It's quite, it's quite possible to imagine that... Um, in America, at least, that's a kind of uh, once once conservatives are in opposition once again, 
they return to a kind of easy natural opposition, which is just kind of, you know, tea party, uh, you know, big government's bad, spending's bad, got to cut this, got to cut that, uh, which is much, e- which is one of those things that's much easier to do in opposition than it is to actually do once you're in government. And the Republicans are pretty good at campaigning on this in opposition and never, never do anything about it. Uh, but I don't think that is the long-term future of conservatism, the kind of the broader shifts that are taking place, not just in America, but in um, the UK too, obviously. Um, conservative, the kind of the, the conservative base, the demographics that kind of make up the conservative coalition now are changing. Uh, and I think the kind of the, um, the, the working class realignments, if you can call it that, I think that is a kind of a long-term trend that's here to stay. Uh, and I expect that kind of long-term, the, the cleavages that politics are built around are still going to be built around these emerging cleavages between kind of um, left behind, older, um, less educated citizens, and then, you know, younger, more urban, more trendy, more progressive uh, voters. I think that is probably the kind of, that is the new, the new cleavages in politics that you're, you'll see. Um, and I, the Republicans and you know conservatives in the UK, the conservatives in Canada, the Republicans in America, that these are the cleavages now that um, the party system is going to end up having to be built around. Do you still think? Uh, do you think that the Republicans are still going to get the uh, Rust Belt to vote for them, even if they turn into a kind of Tea Party protest, low tax? Movement? I don't. I don't. Um, I think if the Republicans go in that, if they if they do end up just reverting to that kind of uh, small small government, uh, you know libertarianism light conservatism then they'll struggle and um they'll struggle to kind of retain those voters but that's precisely why i don't think that uh that is the long-term future of the republican party or conservatism in america i think there's enough kind of recognition now that um the kind of i mean the most the most the most um it's a it's it's an interesting kind of post facto thing to look at now Uh, and it was present even back um decades ago it's just something that's become apparent now um but the republican base for quite a while has been um much more kind of working class and less educated and uh, older uh than than people like to think um there was a book written in uh in the bush years i think it was written around 2004 called what's the matter with kansas quite a famous book and it's a book about kind of, it's written by a guy named Thomas Frank, uh, um, uh, an old fashioned kind of left wing socialist type. Um, and he was trying to understand why um, these kind of poor rural voters in places like in Kansas, specifically in the book where he's from, he was trying to understand why, why do they vote for, a, I think the line is something like, why do they vote for a party that so manifestly screws them? Um, talking about kind of the, you know, kind of the, the corporate agenda, his kind of version of like the Republican corporate agenda. And the conclusion he kind of comes to, and he's critical of the Republicans for this, the conservatives for this, is that these voters are actually much more um, economic questions and cultural questions are actually, they're questions about values. They're not just kind of strict questions about, you know, tax rates and stuff like that. And I think something that Trump exposed was that so much of the kind of uh, the dogma, the kind of elite conservative dogma, um, that you saw in kind of, you know, the think about like poor Ryan style Republicans. It was just exposed that, well, you know, that might be the kind of the dominant dogma of kind of professional conservatism. It really was never the kind of the driving, the driving things that motivated Republican voters. Uh, and then uh, Trump kind of served as a kind of an unbuckling, an unfreezing kind of uh, event uh, to really kind of loosen some of these attachments and kind of build uh, build this kind of working class coalition beyond uh, beyond just the, like the, the working class religious voters, 
expanded into these kind of these rust belt states where um, these people, the these new kind of Trump voters are, are, are quite often were particularly they're not religious voters, they're not socially conservative in the kind of traditional way that they they were understood. Um, and that divide, I think, is here to stay, which is why I don't expect there. Well, I think there'll be there will be some interesting kind of uh, debates about kind of the future of the Republican Party and the future of uh, conservatism and conservatism in America. I suspect the kind of those people have the upper hand because those are the voters that I think Republicans realize they're going to have to rely on going going forward, and so the party will, in some sense, have to change because of that. We are running out of time, so I'll just ask one final question, which should be fairly easy. Uh, have conservatives lost? Uh, not yet. <laughs> uh, they, they. Um, I think the the, the conservative. Um, you see, and you see this everywhere uh, across developed countries. The conservative impulse for the last thirty or forty years has been to recognise that we're kind of we're uh, on the back foot, but they've had the wrong. Well, 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 understandable. The wrong impulse, which is. The, what needs to be done isn't to actually kind of, you know, go out and take the battle, take the fight to uh, the people, the progressives and during the ascendancy. It's been this kind of, um, this impulse to kind of build, uh, build alternative institutions, build alternative this, alternative that, you know. Oh, we can't, we've lost the university, so we'll just build uh, think tanks. Uh, we've lost, you know, public schools, so we'll just, we'll, um, we'll start, you know, America will fund more private schools. Um, I think there's this 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 attempt to kind of uh, you know we won't we won't actually fight battles about values we'll just hide behind some sort of abstract defense of well uh, we want our freedom to do x without actually you know making any kind of qualified defense of why you want to do x or why you believe x um, and I think that's well it's a kind of you can it's an understandable impulse this desire to withdraw just kind of uh, say what we were talking about earlier with uh, you know retreating from Twitter and going to another platform it's just not the world cannot as much as you know the world does seem to be kind of fracturing and balkanizing in some ways um, we conservatives can't just abandon fighting fight, fights in the kind of the public forum and the public square they can't just retreat to kind of we'll build alternatives and we'll defend you know liberty and that's it they have to actually I think kind of um Part of this re- reinvigorated or revitalized conservatism, conservatism has to recognize um, that the public that there's a, the public square needs to be a place where we contest uh, and where we where we contest ideas and where we try and actually actually win as opposed to just kind of like stick f- f- fighting this kind of uh, this orderly retreat, which is essentially what we've done for thirty years. Um, and I think the the well, it's well, it is helpful to have those alternative institutions, especially you know alternative media. Uh, alternative newspapers, stuff like that. Um, I think there needs to be a more kind of muscular and robust attempt to not retreat, to not constantly be on the back foot and to actually just push back. Um, and I don't think, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the relationship between kind of movement and ideas, conservatism versus electoral politics, and, and there's not, you know, the lines are blurry and it's not clear that, you know, that those two things are not, um, they're not always the same. Uh, but I don't think that kind of an attitude, as much as it would get, you know, you would get the kind of the usual accusations of, um, you know, fascism and those kind of things from from progressives and from all sorts of kind of voices in media. Um, I think you just kind of have to. That we need some of us. Need, some of us just need to essentially grow a backbone uh, and just push back against stuff like that. Because I don't think stuff like this is. Um, I do think a lot of, on a lot of things. Conservatives still represent, and especially on cultural stuff, they still represent a kind of um, a silent majority. Um, and I don't think they're, they're, they're you know, they might, um, 
they might get uh, criticism and nasty pushback from elite voices. That doesn't mean that um, everyone thinks they said, you know, everyone thinks they're wrong. Um, so I think that instead of kind of this engaging in this kind of orderly retreat, conservatives actually need to start kind of being a bit more assertive and uh, muscular and actually like fighting for the in the public forum and actually contesting their ideas instead of just engaging in uh, you know vague defenses of freedom or just just retreating entirely, which is just entirely. It's self-defeating, a self-defeating movement at that point, if that's all it's capable of doing. Yes. Uh, well, Ben, it's been fascinating talking to you on the Critic Podcast uh, about uh, conservatism, uh, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed listening to the Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.